the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Difference Makers. Welcome. My name is Mike Lee, Director of Local Ministries for True Talk 800, now on 106.3 FM in East Portland and Vancouver, 93.9 KPDQ, AM 860, The Answer, KPAM, La Patrona 1640, 93.1 El Rey, and 104.1 The Fish. And I'd love to talk with you about getting more people back to your church, sharing about your ministry through our free online church directory and our church service live stream directory, expanding your ministry or business beyond your walls, establishing yourself as an authority in your field, and becoming more known through radio and podcasting, building awareness of your company or outreach by hosting our events at your location at no risk to you, marketing your message or brand directly to your target audience through the latest and most powerful online tools of Salem Surround, and most importantly, if your ministry leader or pastor could use a phone call, a word of encouragement, a cup of coffee, or a connection to others, please email me at mikelee at kpdq.com. That's M-I-K-E-L-E-E at kpdq.com. And speaking of pastors, we're very excited to have the host of Alan Jackson Ministries heard weekday afternoons at 4 on True Talk 800. So welcome, Pastor Alan Jackson. How are you today, sir? I'm very good, Mike. It's good to be with you on Difference Makers. Well, thanks so much for taking time out of your ridiculously busy schedule to not only interview, but come out to the Pacific Northwest. We've got a pastor lunch coming to Seattle, and then we're going to have the pastor appreciation breakfast coming right here to Portland. And we're so thrilled to have not only you, but our very own Georgine Rice as our special musical guest. And that'll be 8 a.m. Thursday morning, November 3rd, with all the details at kpdq.com. So, have you been to the Pacific Northwest recently, or do you have any ties out here? I have not been there in a long time, so I'm looking forward to getting to that part of the country again. Well, looking forward to it. So are there any particular places you'd like to visit or types of food you'd like to try? Yes. <laughs> My favorite food is the kind I can reach. So short of that, I'm not picky. Well, we certainly are looking forward to that as we are about your new book, Big Trouble Ahead. So could you give us the big picture? What prompted you to write your latest book, Big Trouble Ahead, Pastor Allen? Well, the, the title was really birthed out of the pandemic in those couple of weeks where they told us to go home and shelter in place. And pretty quickly, we realized that we were not only not going to flatten the curve, but the disruption was going to reach in front of us for quite a while. And even though the virus has kind of stepped into the background, I think we still see these rising um, lawlessness and violence, the economic conditions of the country, the open border, the propaganda, the disinformation. I mean, the list goes on and on. And I don't think we're finished yet. So I realized that we needed a plan so that we weren't just overwhelmed with despair and fear, but there was a pathway of hope through this season of disruption. And that, that was really the genesis of the book. I'm glad that you put this together, Pastor Allen. Do you enjoy writing? 
I do. Most of my writing is built out of content that I, I create for the congregation. Some of it is uniquely written, and some of it are sermons that we transcribe. But you know, I've been a pastor for several decades in the same congregation, and so I have this sense that I'm making a journey with a group of people. And so what, I, what ends up in print are really the lessons and, that we're learning as we try to navigate the world. Alan Jackson is the lead pastor of World Outreach Church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. So how is the climate in Tennessee versus the rest of the country from what you've seen? Have as many people come back to your church as the number that attended pre-pandemic? Well, it's, it's, that's a very good question. Uh, we've been fortunate in Tennessee. Our governor has a biblical worldview and has been respectful of churches as we've walked through this season. So we have not had some of the same pressures that we have seen in other places. I have been doing pastor's conferences like the one we're going to be doing there in Portland, um, in Cal- Southern California and in Texas and Florida. And there's a tremendous variation from state to state depending upon the leadership in those areas. And we've been really fortunate. Our congregation, we're actually serving more people than we serve pre-COVID. But there's been some churn in that. I would say maybe 30% of the people who were a routine part of the congregation before COVID are not back on campus. Now, there's a group of people who have taken their place that are delighted to be here. And so we have a sense of celebration on one hand that God is moving, and we grieve on the other hand um, some folks who seem to have either stepped back or be more content with digital forms of participating in church. So it's, it's kind of a mixed season, but God is clearly doing some unique things, and we want to be participating. Understandably, I remember how many churches, mine included, were able to get on the live stream bandwagon and do surprisingly better than we would have thought. However, it did accentuate the fact that people can indeed wake up at 8.58 for a 9 o'clock service. They don't have to leave their homes and observe online, whether it's on their computer or their smartphone. So can you give us the importance of fellowshipping in person, please? I can. I'm a pastor, so everybody knows I have a bias, I'm sure. But I I think there's something that's irreplaceable to making the effort to present yourself to the Lord. It really has very little to do with the building or even the quality of the sermon. I think the idea is that God deserves our very best, our respect, our reverence, our attention, you know, in the Hebrew Bible, the, the Jewish community, the Israelites were commanded three times a year to make a pilgrimage feast to Jerusalem. That was a very difficult journey that took many days. Now, I know we're not bound by those same rules today, but the idea of presenting ourselves before the Lord in the midst of God's people should not be understood as something that's burdensome or loathsome. It is an opportunity and a privilege. And I think if we were ever to lose that privilege, we would wake up to that reality but we've had so much comfort and convenience that we've allowed our faith to be kind of wrapped into that blanket that it needs to accommodate my preferences and my ease and what's convenient for my schedule. In reality, God needs first place, and the greatest sacrifice of our week should be directed towards the Lord. So I would encourage anybody that's listening, if you've kind of set aside worship for any number of reasons, I would encourage you that it's worth the effort, not because of what you hear or the music that is presented, but for the honor and the privilege of standing in the midst of God's people and presenting yourself to worship. I so appreciate you saying that, Pastor Allen. And I also want to let you know that we had a recent meeting 
across the country for people in my position as directors of local ministry. And the other markets where you have already spoken at pastors' events, they've raved about you and about your entourage and how personable you have been with pastors and families and how late you were to just stay and speak with all of them. So thank you for just being humble and getting out there and meeting people across the country at Salem Media Group events. We really appreciate that. Well, it's my honor. You know, we serve at the Lord's pleasure. And if I can be in the midst of God's people and those men and women who are serving the Lord and giving Him their best, I consider it the greatest honor of my life. So when Salem extended this invitation, it has been a delight for me. And I'm looking forward to coming to meeting some folks in your part of the country. We're certainly looking forward to having you here as well as in Seattle. So let's backtrack just a little. Can you tell us where did Alan Jackson grow up? That's a good question. My father was a veterinarian, and he graduated from the veterinary school at the University of Missouri. And when he graduated from there, I was seven years old, and we moved to Miami. He wanted to treat horses. So one of the finest equine practices in the nation was on the thoroughbred tracks in South Florida. So we moved there. Uh, There was an event just before that that is uh, significant to this conversation. Two weeks before he graduated, my mother gave birth to my youngest brother, and while she was in the hospital, she was diagnosed with cancer and told she had six months to live. Now, we were churched folks, but we weren't Christians. And on the way to Mayo Clinic for some rather dramatic surgery, my mother said a little prayer that if there was a God, he would let her know the truth before she died so she could tell her sons whatever that truth was. I have two brothers. And she thought it would mean to be Baptist or Jewish or Catholic. Well, she spent four days at Mayo Clinic having a complete exam, and the doctor came in her room late at night after the fourth day and said, I don't have an explanation for this. When you arrived here, you clearly had cancer. We have the film and the blood work and the test. But he said, we've spent four days, and we can't find it. Go home and raise your babies. And my mother's in her mid-80s these days. Uh, We moved to Miami. My dad went to work on the thoroughbred tracks. And a Sunday school teacher in my parents' church was born again, and he told them they could be born again. And they became Christians at his house on a Sunday after church. And that really changed the direction of my family's life. My parents decided not to raise three sons in that South Florida urban environment, and they brought us to Middle Tennessee. I I live in a suburb of Nashville for the Tennessee walking horses. So I grew up in horse barns and chasing horses and doing all those things that come with a veterinarian. And my parents had a Bible study in their home for a dozen years. And it was really, the Murfreesboro was a small community in the South in the late 60s. It was, the group was like the island of misfit toys. People were from different colors and different nationalities. And my parents, they would gather together routinely. And that, that's where the church came from. So I have been in Middle Tennessee since I was a boy and been watching God change lives since he intervened in my mother's life. You know, that event shapes my imagination of God until today. If you ask me, I believe God can, and you can fill in the blank after can, because he healed my mom when we were pagans, not because she prayed the right prayer or she knew the right verse to quote, certainly not because of her moral choices, because we were not godly people. But God in his grace and mercy intervened in my mother's life, and by that I would grant the privilege of growing up with my birth mom. And so I still believe God is in the transformation business. Everybody I pray for doesn't get well, but every week I hear stories of God transforming people's lives. And that is the message that I have the great privilege of sharing in our congregation and wherever the Lord opens a door for me. What a fantastic testimony for a young boy to witness, his mom being 
cured from cancer. So had you noticed a change in your veterinarian dad when all this was going down? Absolutely. In fact, I became a Christian because my parents mellowed so much. I walked in the kitchen one day and I said, you all are different. Tell me what's happened. Because the temperature in our home went down about half. And they told me they'd accepted Jesus into their heart and asked me if I wanted to. So I knelt in the kitchen floor at 4811 Jackson Street in Hollywood, Florida and became a Christian. I got baptized in the Atlantic Ocean in Fort Lauderdale in front of the Sheraton Hotel. So my spiritual formation didn't take place in a church building. But it was the transformation in my parents' lives that really led me to faith. And then as as when I left home to go to college, I knew I had respected my parents' rules because I lived under their roof, but that I had a decision to make for myself. And I rather arrogantly said to God that I, I will do my best to honor you as I go to college. But if at the end of four years I don't think you're real, leave me alone because I'm tired of feeling guilty because I was firmly a straddle the fence. And I wasn't sure yet what I was going to do with my life. And I don't mean professionally, I mean morally. And so I left home knowing I had to decide if my parents' faith was going to be suitable for me. And God in His great mercy continued to to draw me towards Him. That's wonderful. So had your parents given you any aspirations of going into the clergy? I mean, your dad was a veterinarian. I'm sure he valued education to some degree, right? Yeah, he valued education to a high degree. Uh, I Really, I left home to my intent since I was about six years old was to go to medical school. I loved the challenge of medicine. I loved the puzzle that medicine presents. And it, it was really a, a series of things. It, it was not easy for me to turn loose of that because I liked the lifestyle and all the things that came with it. And ministry to me was not something I'd had a positive exposure to. When I was a boy, ministers wore black robes and vestments. And I don't ever remember seeing a minister's laugh or smile. And I knew I didn't fit that model. In fact, I knew I couldn't fit that model. But when I graduated from college, I spent a summer in the Philippines, in the central islands of the Philippines. And I came home from that three-month stint, understanding that God could use the life of a normal people to impact other people towards His kingdom. And so then I began to try to collect some skill sets and some academics to help me in ministry. That's fantastic. We're speaking with the host of Alan Jackson Ministries, heard every weekday afternoon at 4 on True Talk 100. And he's also written a new book titled Big Trouble Ahead. Recession, inflation, lawlessness, deception, censorship, many things are troubling our nation, but we have a hope that extends beyond time. Pastor Alan Jackson's new book, Big Trouble Ahead, can help strengthen and encourage you for what's ahead, offering a real plan to help you flourish even in these challenging times. Make sure that you check out the website to find out more. Go to truetalkat100.com or kpdq.com. And when you return, more about the man himself, Alan Jackson, on Difference Makers. Welcome back to Difference Makers. Mike Lee here with the host of Alan Jackson Ministries, heard weekday afternoons at 4 on True Talk at 100. Let your pastor and ministry leader know that Pastor Alan Jackson is coming to town Thursday morning, November 3rd at 8 a.m. Embassy Suites, Portland Airport, with special guest music by our very own Georgine Rice for our Pastor Appreciation Breakfast. 
Pastor Alan Jackson has written a new book. It's called Big Trouble Ahead. And has God put anything on your heart intrinsically for the least church cities in the country? Um, no, I can't say specifically. You know, I, I think the message to the pastors, so many pastors have lost significant portions of their congregation. Hmm. And it's so easy to make that personal, and it's defeating. And I think they need to understand clearly that it's not personal. It's the Samuel passage when they came and said, we want a king. And God said, Samuel, it's not you they're rejecting. Mm. You know, what's happening in our world is larger than the pastors or our denominations or our styles of worship or our personal ministry style. There's a battle taking place for the hearts and minds of people. And if we understand that that's happening on a much broader scale and that it's not something personally attached to the, the setting in which I'm doing ministry, it will help galvanize us against the discouragement and the despair that is settling over so many pastors and church leaders and even church boards and ministry leaders and presbyteries. Uh, we are not defeated. There's a conflict taking place. And we don't have to look any further than the evening news to see that, whether it's about moral standards or biblical worldview or even simple things like law, lawlessness or you know, honoring our borders as a nation, things that really have not been up for debate, and now they're in complete chaos. So it's not surprising to me that there's a a significant spiritual push on pastors and church leaders to imagine they're either failures or insignificant or they've made mistakes because people they have served for many, many years stepped away under this cloud of COVID and have not stepped back. And it's almost impossible for that not to feel personal. So if I could say to them, if I could sit down and have a cup of coffee, I would assure them this is not personal. There's something far greater taking place and begin to pray with compassion for those people that have stepped away and to recognize there are other hungry people God will send towards you. This is a season for the church to advance and to grow stronger and to expand our influence, not to imagine that it's being diminished. Great points, Alan. So can you give us any nuts and bolts when it comes to giving our pastors just a sense of encouragement and hope that we've got their backs, even though things aren't what they used to be. It's not their faults personally. How do you express that? Well, I think the most encouraging thing I can see that personally that reinvigorates and re-energizes me in the service that I'm giving is when I see the people around me lead with their faith. When I see them take their faith into their home and have those rather difficult conversations about biblical worldview and what it means to honor God in our home, that we're no longer going to wink at ungodliness or immorality, or when they take those conversations into their relationships with friends, or they're willing to take it into the marketplace where they do business. When I hear them recounting those stories to me, it helps me understand there is a fruitfulness to my life that's far more powerful than somebody simply patting me on the back and say, I want you to be encouraged. What's truly encouraging is to see the harvest and to hear the stories of transformation coming from the lives of the people. And then it takes discipline on the part when we hear those to focus our attention on that and not to give our attention to the knuckleheads, to the goofiness and to the ungodliness. You know, in Psalm 37, in the first verse, it says, don't fret about those who do wickedness. And I think we have to have the discipline as leaders at whatever level we're leading not to give our attention and our emotions to the expressions of ungodliness, but to be very careful in gathering and collecting those stories of what God is doing and giving those a primary focus in our thoughts and our emotions 
you know, celebrate the birth of a child, celebrate a wedding in a couple where they love one another or an anniversary of somebody. Find those expressions that, that only God brings to our lives and keep those uppermost in our thoughts. It's a protection for us, and the battle is usually lost in our mind long before it's lost anyplace else. So I think the greatest encouragement you can give to them is to share the God stories that are a part of your daily life. Of all the interviews I've been able to host, and it's been a privilege, Pastor Allen, anytime I interview a PK or a pastor's kid, I think that across the board, the most encouraging thing for me to hear is that my parent was exactly the same at home as at the pulpit. So it really seems like your parents set an example before you greater than any legendary preacher or theologian could put because you saw their change. I did. You know, my father was, as I said, was a veterinarian. And that what you described is precisely what captured my attention. The one thing my father is not good at is small talk. In fact, I think he's incapable of it. He's impatient with it. He's not good at it. And, you know, what you see is what you get. And I observed that when he was at home by himself and nobody was watching, he would sit down and read his Bible. I used to, it confounded me. I didn't understand. I knew that my friend's fathers, for the most part, didn't do that. And there was nobody watching. He wasn't trying to impress anybody. That it was genuinely a passion. I knew him when that wasn't true. I watched him change his habits and his morals. And I watched his focus come to the Word of God. And when his peer group was buying second homes, or lake houses, or larger boats. He was investing in the spread of the gospel. And I, I thought, that's just weird. But I, I really didn't see inconsistent. I don't mean he wasn't perfect. I'd see him get mad at animals or angry at circumstances, and I knew he was very human. But there was a genuineness to his faith that intrigued me, so that I knew as I became a man, I was going to have to make a decision about my own faith. And that it either had to be genuine or it wasn't worth having at all. And I really owe that to my father more than any other human being. And I I don't think parents understand fully. It isn't what you say to your children nearly as much as what you live before them. Children are great sponges. They absorb what's in the home around them. And that doesn't mean you're perfect and that you don't make mistakes. But your children know what you really value. Not what you tell your church friends you value. They know what you truly value. Now, here's the good news. If your values have been wrong, if you'll humble yourself, God will help you. And if they've been right, you've already got momentum on the next generation. Either way, you can win. No guilt and shame. Just stop playing games. Alan, you'd mentioned when you went away to college, it's almost as if you drew a line in the sand with God, and you said, you've got four years to prove yourself real to me. So, Where did that come from, and how did those college years go for you? That's a good question, and since you ask, I'll tell you one more piece of the story. When I graduated from high school, I'd been an undercover Christian. I didn't want to deny my faith, but I didn't want enough Christianity that it influenced my social agenda, to my shame. And the night I graduated, I happened to be on the platform for some activity, and I'm standing at the podium, and I'm watching all of my classmates file out of the auditorium. And for the first time in my life, I heard the Spirit of God on the inside of me say something to me. And he said, you say you're a Christian. And I said, yes, I am. And he said, but you've never one time made any attempt to tell one of these people what you know about me. At that point in my life, you could not make me cry. I'd had my teeth knocked out and my nose broken and my eyes split. And I was comfortable spitting blood at you, but you couldn't make me cry. 
And standing on that platform in an arena in front of thousands of people, tears started running down my face because I knew that I was, I was not where I should be with the Lord. So I made him a promise that night. I said, I'm leaving town. I was going 700 miles away, and I knew I didn't have any more social pressure to comply with anybody else's morals. And I said, I'll do my best to honor you for four years. And if at the end of that time, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I didn't have any idea that meant ministry. I just meant I'd be a Christian doctor. But if it's not real, leave me alone because I'm tired of feeling guilty. I look back and realize what an arrogant prayer that was. But God in His mercy honored that in my life. So that was the attitude with which I left Tennessee. And three years later, I found myself changing my professional path and saying to the Lord, I'll consider serving you. I won't be a preacher, but I'll consider serving you. And so he's, he's been very gracious to me in spite of my arrogance and my stubbornness and my pride. I, I had a friend, one Sir Lionel LeCoux, and I heard him say, when you look at my life, I'm a turtle on a fence post. He said, when you see a turtle on a fence post, you know one thing for certain, it didn't get there by itself, it had to have help. And that would be my testimony. Wow. Just wow. So was this a gradual switch for you over your college years? Was there a light bulb moment where it just instantaneously struck you or what? No, it was more like a wrestling match. You know, I, I, I had a sense inside of me. I was very conscious inside of me that I knew what I wanted to do with my life. I knew the incomes I wanted to earn. I knew the professional status that I wanted to attach to myself. I knew the lifestyle that I was seeking. That was very clear to me. And I never invited God into that discussion because, honestly, I didn't want his opinion. I was happy to have his blessing. I didn't necessarily want it to be blatantly immoral or just blatantly ungodly. I just wanted to do what I wanted to do. And the, the further I got along that path, the, the more illogical it became to me. I would hear my say, myself say, God was the most important thing in my life, but I knew I had no interest in what he wanted. So when I finally got the courage to say to him, is there anything you would have for my life? It was one of the more sobering seasons of my life because I was afraid of the answer, which is stupid. As if God needed anything from me or would take anything away from me. I was just so selfish and so carnal, I didn't understand that the greatest privilege any person can have is to yield yourself as fully as possible to the Lordship of Jesus. So over these college years, Pastor Allen, were there other mentor figures that stand out in your memory? There were. You know, some were celebrated people that were people that taught the Bible all over the world. Derek Prince was a mentor and a friend. and um, Dr. Howard Irvin. I mean, there, there's a rather lengthy list of those people. I went to Oral Roberts University, not because it was a Christian school, but because they were beginning a new medical school at that time. And I thought I had the easiest opportunity of getting in there. And so Oral Roberts was certainly a significant voice. He was still very involved with students at that point in time. But there were also those unsung people. You know, I was in a pre-med program, which there's a very high rate of attrition. There were almost 400 of us in my freshman class. And by the time I got to my junior year, there were fewer than 50. And it was very personal to me at that point. And there was a, a woman that was a friend of my family. She'd been a missionary in Cuba before Castro closed it. And she spent a day with me, and she, she asked me all these questions, and she said, you're such an angry young man. And I said, I have to be angry. That's the edge that I need to defeat these faculty members. And she was quiet for a long time, and she said, you know, you'll have to forgive them. 
because you know, my friends would come to my room crying and they'd say, you know, the doctors tell me that I'm too stupid to ever be a physician. And I'd tell them what to go tell that doctor that had spoken to them, and I won't repeat it on the radio. I mean, it was a personal struggle to me. And that, that woman said to me, you know, you don't have a choice. You have to forgive. And she just wouldn't let it go. And to my surprise, when I was willing to forgive those people, uh, I, I was unhooked from them. I would have become a physician just to prove that to them that I could, whether it was God's purpose for my life or not. You know, when we hold anger and resentment and bitterness, oftentimes we think we're justified in doing it because someone was unfair or something evil touched our lives. And in reality, anger and bitterness and hatred, they hold us captive. And when I could forgive, it actually set me free to say to the Lord, what do you have for my life? And and one of the biggest surprises of my life was that he invited me towards ministry. Why is it, Pastor Allen, that so many of us that are raised in the church have a mentality where we want to go to heaven, we want to be saved, but... We don't want to give up that which the world has to offer us. We don't want to miss out on any fun. And how do we raise a generation of people in the church, the youth in particular, to know that God's ways are so much higher than the dreams we might have for ourselves? Well, I think we have to bring more integrity back into the church because I shared a lot of those same feelings. And it was rooted in some things in my life. When I was a young person, you know, I thought you gave your leftovers to the church if you got a new refrigerator, you gave your old one to the church. Or if you got a new coach, you could give your old one to the church. Or if you didn't have anything better to do with your time, maybe you would go to church. So church to me was a place for leftovers, leftover appliances, leftover clothing, leftover energy, leftover attention. You know, the joy of my life and the enthusiasm of my life certainly was not directed at church. And I didn't see very many voices that competed with that. I would even hear people give their testimonies. And they say, you know, before I met Jesus... You know, the, the beautiful women were my friends, and I drove fast cars, and then I became a Christian. And implied was now I have a bicycle, and I only hang out with ugly people. <laughs> and I remember listening to that thinking, well, why would I want to be a Christian? And, and I, I had to, we've got to have more integrity. You see, I think God deserves our very best. I think the most beautiful buildings in a city ought to be the churches. And I know that goes against some conventional wisdom and that people will say it's, you know, the pastors are trying to take the money for themselves. But there was a time in the story of the church where the most beautiful buildings were the churches because we wanted people's attitudes to see that. And I live in Tennessee and I'll often say, why do we want the University of Tennessee athletic teams to have the finest facilities in the Southeastern Conference? And we're happy if our churches meet in a repurposed box store. Now, when I started here at the church, we had a tent in the middle of a cotton field. So we've certainly not always had elaborate facilities or technology. I'm not saying it's based in that. But I would say that God deserves our very best. And if we would begin to bring that integrity back into our lives and let our children see it. You know, I would say to the parents, how many of you have the aspiration that your children would grow up and serve the Lord professionally? See, we've been so inconsistent. We tell our kids, you know, God's important. But then we push them towards things that put them on other paths because we don't imagine that serving the Lord is really the highest aspiration of a human life. And I believe it is. God doesn't need anything that Alan has. He certainly doesn't need me to cut him a check. He doesn't need my IQ. I assure you the angels did not get to heaven and breathe a sigh of relief when I signed on to the team. Quite the opposite. I'm sure they got together with great concerns because they just accepted another liability. I don't possess anything that God needs other than my willingness to serve Him. 
And I've done this for a while now, and I can say to anyone listening, you will never regret what you invest in the kingdom of God. God will be no man's debtor. You'll never outgive him with your time, your attention, your effort, your resources, your talent. If you will truly give your best to the Lord, he will multiply those things back into your life. And I don't mean that in the sense of overwhelming prosperity. God will care for his people. But serving the Lord is the grandest invitation a human being will ever receive. Alan Jackson Ministries, his latest book, Big Trouble Ahead. Let your pastor and ministry leader know that Pastor Alan Jackson is coming to town Thursday morning, November 3rd at 8 a.m. Embassy Suites, Portland Airport, with special guest music by our very own Georgine Rice for our Pastor Appreciation Breakfast. All of the details are at kpdq.com and truetalk100.com. And make sure to listen to Alan Jackson Ministries every weekday afternoon at 4 on True Talk 800. More with Alan Jackson next on Difference Makers. You're listening to Difference Makers. My name is Mike Lee, and let your pastor and ministry leader know that Pastor Alan Jackson is coming to town Thursday morning, November 3rd at 8 a.m. Embassy Suites, Portland Airport, with special guest music by our very own Georgine Rice for our Pastor Appreciation Breakfast. So we're so very excited about you and your entourage coming to the Pacific Northwest, Pastor Alan. And I want to get back to something you had said earlier in the interview. You were talking about churches not admiring or appreciating beauty. So if there's something that's been on my wife's heart of late, she's been blown away by the concept that we discount beauty for truth and for goodness. And we often beat people over the head with truth to the point where we disregard beauty altogether. So do you think that's a common theme in the modern church today? Well, I think from my vantage point, and I know it's limited, I think what is common is there is more resistance to Christianity, more skepticism directed towards us. So it's easier to create structures and places of gathering that are understated because it draws less attention and less criticism. And I am not suggesting that the more elaborate building, the holier the people or the more expensive the building in fact, you know, as I said, we started with the tent, and we had very, very modest buildings for a long time. But for me, that meant that the, the way we took care of the yard, you know, the, the, the campus of the church, and I was the one mowing the grass. But I, I took care of the lawn of the church as if I were tending the lawn of the king of kings. And at that time, I still cleaned the building myself. And so when I cleaned the bathrooms, I was determined we would have the cleanest, freshest bathrooms of any public space in the community. So I think it's a matter of wherever you are in the unfolding story that God is delivering through your life, that you treat it with the dignity and the respect that you're serving the king of all kings. And then I think out of that, God can entrust you with other things. But I don't want to lead people towards the notion that it's how elaborate it is. But I would say to the people that are in churches and supporting churches and giving to churches that it's inconsistent that your your vacations are more elaborate than the places you worship. I always wanted to think that the, the, the church where we worship was nicer than the home where I live. And I, I live in a lovely home. I'm not suggesting that I live in a barn, although I like barns. 
But I, I think we've just been a little hypocritical in that we've, we've said God should be modest and humble. And yet in our personal lives for ourselves or our children or our grandchildren, we have grand aspirations. And I'm not opposed to those aspirations for the generations who follow us. But the greatest the honor of our lives is giving the best we have to the Lord. And that, I think, has gotten lost in the shuffle because there is a very real pushback. And the cancel culture didn't just start with COVID. There's been a resistance to Christianity for decades, whether we were conscious of it or it was more subliminal. And so we have stepped back from so many of those things, oftentimes because we didn't want to invest the time or the energy, the effort or the resources. And I think one of the reasons God's judgment has, has begun to fall upon us is we've been inconsistent in our language and our behavior. But in his mercy, he's given us a chance to realign a bit. And I believe we have a better future if we will listen. So is the example that we choose to live the way to push back against the fear of cancel culture? Yeah, and you know, in a sentence, I think we have to learn to lead with our faith again. And that starts at the kitchen table. Tell the truth in your family system. Stop winking at wickedness and tell the truth to one another. We all understand that may disrupt our holidays a little bit and bring some very difficult conversations. But it's illegitimate to want a leader, a president, or a pastor to tell the truth if we're not willing to have those truthful conversations at the kitchen table. And then beyond that, we take that same faith into our friends' network. We go to our friends and we begin to live with a biblical worldview and have biblical conversations. When you sit on the bleachers at the ball fields while your kids are playing soccer, talk to the other parents you're doing life with. Tell them about your faith. Take your Bible with you. Just lay it on the bleachers. Don't say anything. Maybe you take your Bible to work with you and place it on the desk. The questions will come to you. You won't have to go looking for people. Do you really read that? Do you believe that? Why would you believe that? We've got to begin to take our faith and go public with it again. We have been quiet. We've been undercover, covert Christians for so long that our worldview is almost vacant in the public square. And now we're going to have to have the courage and the boldness to take it back or our children are going to be overwhelmed. Speaking of children, Pastor Allen, especially living in a pandemic era, are there things that we need to be doing differently when it comes to raising our kids and mentoring others? Well, I'm always reluctant to give parenting advice because I think it's one of the most challenging assignments of our lives. But I think the fundamental principles are universal no matter what region of the country we're in or what station in life. You know, to, to, the Bible tells us to train our children in the way they should go. And those early years are so important, not so much in what we say, but what we model before our children. And after, after several decades of ministry, I can tell you what I've learned. There are no perfect families. Most of us, if you look up dysfunctional, we'll find our family picture there. And the people who you think families are perfect are the ones you just don't have enough information about. And I don't say that to, to accommodate sloppiness or ungodliness. If you're intentionally cultivating sin, stop it. It will destroy you. Having said that, the myth of the perfect family does not exist in reality. Norman Brockwell painted fantasies. And if we can grapple with the fact that all of us come from broken places, but the grace and mercy of God will help us, and that a child entrusted to you is a sacred gift. You may share DNA material with them. You may not, but they're not really yours. It's the ultimate train and release program. God has entrusted those children to you for a very brief season, and then you're going to release them in the world, hopefully prepared to honor Him and serve Him. And if you can keep that in mind as a parent, you'll find grace for your shortcomings and your failures, 
and you'll find a strength and a purpose for that assignment. If we realize that we really want to help them grow in the knowledge of God and be free to serve Him, the rest of those components of their lives will find their place. There's an incredible pressure put on parents today that I don't believe comes from the heart of God. It's Parenting is not a competitive sport. Your child does not have to crush every four, other four-year-old that's playing t-ball. So that it's not really necessary for them to have a hitting coach and a and somebody to help them with their flexibility. You know, help them become godly young people and then godly adults. And I trust the Spirit of God to direct them through their lives. Good points from the host of Alan Jackson Ministry. It heard weekday afternoons at 4 on True Talk 800. Pastor Alan, we are so looking forward to you being the keynote speaker at our Pastor Appreciation Breakfast. Well, Mike, I'm looking forward to being with you and seeing the pastors in your region. God has placed them in a very strategic place at a very strategic time, and I know he will help them. In your travels, Pastor Allen, have there been common themes that you've seen throughout the pastors that you've encountered? What are they experiencing? What's hurting their hearts right now? I think a lot of pastors I talk with are really teetering on the brink of despair because it's a difficult season. There's so much confusion. It's hard to know whom to trust. The messaging are confusing. The, the rate of change that's coming towards us is so rapid. The ways that we have practiced our ministry in previous years don't seem appropriate in this season. The people are unsettled. And they're being asked to lead in a way that, candidly, we haven't always had to lead previously. And, and while that's uncomfortable, I also think it's the precipice of something really positive. I believe, you know, we've been familiar in Egypt, and God sent this message to us that it's time to leave Egypt. We're going to a better place. And while that's not an easy transition, I believe God is taking the church and our nation to a better place. So for those pastors listening, I would say don't resist the change. Don't be angry or agitated by it. I believe God has put it before us, and He will help us. He will bring everything we need to navigate this transition so that we can see an unprecedented moving of His Spirit. Pastor Allen, are there certain lessons that you learned from your parents, your dad being the veterinarian, your mom being the cancer survivor who came to faith because of defeating cancer? Are there certain lessons that they taught you over the years that you were sure to pass on to the next generation? Yeah, I think the lessons I gleaned from them still inform my ministry. You know, probably first and foremost is that people matter and that we our, our assignment is to care for people. And the ones, if we will serve the people that God puts before us and he can trust us to care for his children, then he will entrust us with a larger sample set. If he can't trust us with that, then we're not trustworthy with others. And so I I still live with that. I still do my best to live with people and to do ministry in the midst of people and to be available to people. Uh, Beyond that, I think the authority of God's word. You know, it's not a burdensome thing to engage with my Bible. It's a privilege. It doesn't mean every time I open it, I hear the voice of God. But it does mean that consistently, if I will yield my time to that, that it seems to bear fruit in my life. Uh, To acknowledge that there is a Holy Spirit and to learn to listen for His voice, not in some strange way, but to make room for the Spirit of God to bring direction to our lives. I'm very conscious that I need a wisdom beyond myself. I believe in education. Get as much as you can. But at the end of the day, I need outcomes that reflect more than my IQ. So if I bundle those things together, people matter, the Word of God is real, the Holy Spirit is present and He will help you. You know, that set of foundational ideas began in my childhood with my parents, and they're still guiding my life today. 
I'm so grateful that you still have them influencing you today, Pastor Allen. So can you tell us where you met your wife? I did. Um, most days, I'm grateful that my parents are around, too. <laughs> but I met my wife in the community here. Uh, we had known one another in the community. and um, circa, we, we were actually were in a community leadership group together, which put us in proximity that gave us a chance for that relationship to flourish. Good place to meet a wife at your church. It's funny how you refer to it as a little country church, but it certainly has grown over the years, hasn't it? It has. That's probably a little misleading today, but you know, in my mind, it's, it's still that handful of people that were meeting in a tent. And what God has done since then reflects more about His presence than it does anything I'm capable of. So if you just start from the ground up, do you think there's an ideal size for a church when it comes to number of members or attendees, or does that vary from place to place? Now, that's a really good question. And I have, you know, when I began, the church had fewer than 30 people. So I have served a congregation in almost every imaginable size and a whole host of resource positions. And I can't honestly say there was one place where I thought that it was more effective or better or weaker. I think the challenges change at every level. And the the one thing I am convinced of, the greatest barrier to the church continuing to flourish is my willingness to change. If, If I'm willing to continue to grow in the Lord and change and learn to lead in new ways, it enables God to continue to expand the ministry. And I would encourage the pastors listening to avoid the temptation to think that um, there, there's a perfect number of people or that someone smaller or a church with a greater number of people is somehow lesser or greater. I don't think that's true. I know pastors in large churches who I think are very carnal. I know some pastors in very small churches who I think are very carnal. That doesn't have to do with the number of people in the congregation. It has to do with the hearts of the leaders. And we have been competitors for too long. We need one another. I believe Paul told the truth when he said that the Corinthians, you know, the hand can't say to the foot, I don't need you. We truly need one another. And if we can learn that to stand together, we will all be strengthened by it. Great advice starting off at a church with 30-ish people now that World Outreach Church has, is it more than 15,000 people through your various ministries and outreaches? It is. There's a, we have, you know, those numbers fluctuate. So, but yes, that's true. So how does a church of such a great-sized population remain intimate to a point where we can hold each other accountable and we're doing more than just showing up on weekends? Well, you're getting into the weeds, but I give you the answer. It becomes a collection of congregations. You know, there are multiple collections of people within the church. It's not one homogenous block who everybody thinks the same and does the same thing. Uh, the difference in a larger church is you 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 gather with a group of people with whom you share either a life stage or a life interest, or you're willing to serve together. You've only got about twenty friends room for twenty friends in your life. When you get past that, no matter what Facebook says, your dance card gets full. You don't have room for that many birthdays or that many anniversaries or that much trauma. And so, in every church, whether it's two hundred people or two thousand people or twenty thousand people. You, you find those 20 or so people that you're willing to make a life journey with. And so the church becomes collections of groups of people. And it, it's really less about size and has far more to do with the heart and the values of the people with whom you're doing life. Pastor Alan Jackson, thank you so much for your latest book, Big Trouble Ahead. And also for your radio ministry, Alan Jackson Ministry is heard weekday afternoons at 4 on True Talk 800. Is there anyone you'd like to say hi to or send a shout-out to? 
Well, Mike, I'm looking forward to being with you and the pastors in the Pacific Northwest. I know God has called them to this time and season, and it's an honor to me to come and perhaps hold up their arms a bit in the midst of it. All the details on the Pastor Appreciation Breakfast are at the websites, truetalk800.com and kpdq.com. So, Pastor Alan Jackson, thank you so much for what you're doing to impact not only the world through your various radio programs and the church in Tennessee, but for coming up to the Pacific Northwest to see us live and in person. We're so excited that you're coming. We're looking forward to it. We'll see you soon. And thank you for listening to Difference Makers. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.